Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. I'm here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Hanging out with the NBA dude right now. That's right. This is a big deal. <laughs> right now we have Nick Stauskas on, NBA player, Mississauga, born and raised, and a member of the Philadelphia 76ers. How's it going, Nick? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show today, guys. The reason you're on is because uh, you have a big charity game going on called Kiss IPF Goodbye. So I guess we just want to start by asking you a bit about, like, you know, what is IPF for people that don't know who are listening? And how did this game come about for you? So IPF stands for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And it's a very, a very rare lung disease that, to be honest, we don't know much about at this point. And the reason why I kind of got involved with this whole situation uh, is my grandmother was diagnosed with IPF years ago. And unfortunately, she passed away in November. And so at this point, I'm trying to do everything I can just to raise money and awareness because we don't have a cure. Um, there's a lot that we don't know about it. Uh, the quicker we can diagnose it and treat it, the better. And I think right now about 5,000 Canadians pass away each year from, from IPF. So uh, I partnered with CPFF, Canadian Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, uh, for this Kiss IPF Goodbye uh, basketball game. And it's going to be on August 29th at Ryerson. Uh, we're inviting people all across the GTA to come join us. I believe it's $15 for general admission. And then tickets can also be bought to potentially participate in the game and participate in a three-point shootout. So you enter a raffle and you know people are going to be chosen to participate. So it's a pretty cool event for, for fans to get involved in. And it's also supporting a really good cause. So we really encourage everyone to come out and it's going to be fun. That's and awesome, we are man. playing in the game. And, and we happen to have some some... Some players here as well, yeah. That's right. I don't know if you call us players. Well, I call. I, I, I want to know what what is the basketball background for you two? <laughs> well, it's quite extensive. We do play on a Monday night league. That's right. Nice. Most of, like the average demo is like a forty three year old white guys. <laughs> so we look good out there yeah, on those but, nights. But it's one of those like elementary school gyms, so it's yeah. not qu- like it's full court, but like it's actually like three quarter court. So yeah, so like the three point line is like half court. Exactly you got one of those ones, and yeah. you don't yeah. get too tired because nah. uh, because you just don't have to run as much. Um, uh, but I uh, played high school basketball for a pretty terrible Toronto high school basketball team, Harvard Collegiate, which is a downtown mm-hmm. high school. And uh, I played a lot of intramurals at uh, McMaster University down the road. Uh, I'm a shoot-first point guard. I don't play any defense. And I don't rebound either. Okay, so put him on the other team. So put him <laughs> on the other team. We don't, want, we don't want him on our team. No, I'm joking. Um, no, it should be the – game, the game should be interesting because I don't really know – I don't know the basketball, like – I don't know for everyone that's playing. I don't know how much experience they have. So I was just talking to Jen over here. I was saying like, when the game starts, do I try to go for like a hundred points, or do I like, <laughs> or do I just keep it low key? And yeah. Do you go for the Kevin Hart celeb basketball game model like, where you just MV, like you have to go for MVP? Just put them up. Put up shots. I might have to do it. Will I, you pass the rock at all? To oh, I'll pass. I'll pass. I'm just gonna. My whole goal is just to throw you alley oops. Yeah, so I'll I will catch a few alley oops. Okay. Good. Yeah. I'll make sure my legs are fresh that day. So um, back to your grandmother. What side of the family was she on? That's on uh, my mom's side. Your mom's side. Yeah. How old was she? Uh, I believe she was 82 when she passed. Um, but she really, she really outlived the the normal the normal diagnosis. Um, so I think I believe she was diagnosed about seven years ago. And I believe the stat is that at least 50% of people pass away within three to five years oh, of being well, diagnosed. Good. So she did, she did survive, uh, um, you know, quite a long time with it, but it's very, it's a nasty disease. You know, basically what it does is it, it robs the body of oxygen. So, you know, you basically just end up suffocating and you can't breathe. And there's, like I said, there's nothing we can do about it at this point. So terrible disease. And that's why I'm kind of here now trying to do my part. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like I've had a parent pass away and I've had a grandparent pass away. And it's always fascinating to me, like dealing with those things sort of during the course of your normal work. And you said it happened in November, yeah. which is during the NBA season. Yeah. How do you sort of frame something like that when you're supposed to go to work and, you know, perform your regular thing? Yeah, it was tough. She actually... She passed away on opening night, I believe, wow. that, that year in uh, this year. And I remember my parents didn't tell me till after the game because they didn't want me to like, I guess they didn't want me to like come into the game upset. But at that point, though, it was something that we were expecting pretty soon because it, uh, <clears throat> it, you know, things were worsening with her over um, a period of time. So, you know, there was uh, a time period where we, you know, got a chance to prepare for it. But, you know, even when it happens, it's still, you know, it sucks to see someone in your family go. You can so. never fully prepare. Yeah, yeah, you never fully prepare for it. So, the I always find that interesting because we're big sports fans, and how organizations and general managers and coaches, you know, have to deal with this when something personal yeah. happens to one yeah. of their players, and how much time is appropriate to uh, 
to like you know have them away from the team. And, yeah. Like with uh, Brett Brown and and the the Sixers, yeah. what was that like? Uh, were they supportive? Or? Yeah, they're normally they're normally pretty good with like if it's especially if it's someone in your immediate family, like grandparents, parents, you know, brothers or something, brother, sister, something like that. Um, I feel like most of the time you can you can actually take as much time as you want. You know, whether that's like a week or two weeks or whatever it is, they're kind of pretty lenient with that. Um, you know, for my situation with my grandmother, uh, I didn't want to miss, I really didn't want to miss any time. Um, and I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to be away from the team. So we found like, um, a period, I think it was maybe like a week or two after she had passed that, um, there was like a two or three day break in between games for us. And, uh, that's when we scheduled the funeral just so I had some time to like go back home and, and spend some time with my family and not have to worry about like, you know, coming back for a game or anything sure. like that. So um, whenever you can find those kind of breaks in the NBA schedule, it's it's probably best to do it that way. Yeah. You know, a lot of athletes say it's like the best thing they could do for their own mental health is just get back on the court to play. It's like their one yeah. period of just like their own sanctuary. Yeah, is just being able to take their mind off. For things. sure, I agree. I yeah. agree. With uh, you know, the NBA, even though I think Canadians being in the NBA is more common than ever. There's more now than there ever has been. When you're growing up and you start to love basketball. Were you pragmatic about your chances of making the NBA or did you have a blind faith you were always going to make the NBA? Um, it's really, it's an interesting, interesting question because in a sense, yes, I always believed that like I was going to make it no matter what. Since I was eight years old, I always had it in my mind, like I'm going to play in the NBA. I'm going to play in the NBA. I always told myself that, but the only people who really believed that was my parents, my brother, like maybe a few close friends of mine that like really believed in me and then myself and other than that, everyone looked at me like, you're crazy. You're never going to make it to the NBA. So from that aspect, it's like it's tough because you have a bunch of people telling you there's no chance you're going to make it. But in my mind, I always truly believed. I always felt like, you know, I always felt like I worked hard enough to give myself a chance to be there. So um, I guess that I guess having that belief in yourself is important because if you don't believe in yourself, then then no one else is. So I, I feel like within any industry, if you like that that the chances are slim you got to be a little crazy you got to be a little crazy it's like yeah. isaiah thomas is like the fact that he's in the nba only says to me that he's insane yeah. there's sure. no business of five foot seven yeah. guy making the nba especially with fields that have such a low percentage of success you know what i mean like think about how, how many guys you played with over the years that never made well, the league. i i remember growing up with so many guys that you know when i was 10 11 12 years old i thought that they were better players than i were and so i like that's what kind of humbled me all the time was i'm here like I'm here in Toronto and I look at the big picture. I'm like, all right, well, there's two guys on my team right now in Toronto that I think are better than me. I was like, there's probably going to be a lot more around the world that are better than me. So I got to work harder. And that was what I always use as motivation. Like when I saw guys that I thought were better than me, it made me work harder. So um, luckily that's like a mindset and a habit that I've kept my entire career where, you know, I always stay motivated. I'm always looking for, for new things to, you know, gain motivation from, I guess. Did you start sort of in that like, guard sort of position like did, you had a growth spurt at some yeah. point like so what are you six six yeah so I, I was always a point guard growing up that's what i was gonna ask yeah. so you always handling the rock and yeah. then yeah i was always very short and i was playing a year or two years up so like i was always playing with bigger i was always the shortest kid but looking back on it now it really it really helped me because it allowed me to learn certain skills of like you know finishing and um you know ball handling all these things that i wouldn't have had to do if i was really tall at that time um, I learned them at a young age. And then once I had my growth spurt in high school, all those skills transferred over, you know, and then, you know, I'm now I'm six, six and have those skills that, you know, a point guard would have. So it helps me. Yeah. Um, I always, when we play basketball, with, uh, we have some tall friends. Our one friend, Dan is six, four, but he's very resentful that his, you know, junior school coach put him at center. Cause he's yeah. like, I should have been handling the ball. Yeah. But now as an adult, my ball handling skills suck. So we always have to stick him in yeah, the middle. Yeah. So, but that's an advantage. That's why, you know, for me, it was always important. You just got to, you got to work on things on your own time. Yeah. You know, even when, if you're in practice and the coach has you doing a certain thing, like for me, if I didn't like what he had me doing, then I'm going to go home and work on what I want to work on after. That was my, that was my mindset. So. Yeah. It never stopped. Never stopped. So then you, you know, you declare, you get drafted eighth overall by the Kings, which is, you know, I'm sure a magical mm -hmm. moment. But one of the things I'm always interested in is when you're doing these pre-draft interviews. Yeah. How do you go into those? Are, is it like, are you have like a level of confidence? Are you like, this is very weird. It's kind of like a job interview. I'm trying to impress the owner yeah. and the GM. Um, 
So the way the way a lot of the interviews work is there's there's an NBA combine that happens in Chicago every year and there's like the physical testing towards the combine where you know you do like you know how fast are you how high do you jump all that kind of stuff how tall are you how much do you weigh body fat blah 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 and then aside from all the stuff that's on the court and the measurements there's the interview process so you're set up I can't remember which hotel it is in Chicago but you're set up in a hotel and like each team has like a ballroom or like a meeting room or whatever oh. And when you come to the combine on the first day, you receive a schedule. So like you, there's like, there's like a time blocks and everything. And you're like, okay, at 1220, I'm meeting with the Utah jazz at 1240. I'm meeting with the Minnesota Timberwolves at one o'clock. I'm meeting with the Spurs. And it's like, it's 20 minutes, 20 minute blocks. <clears throat> and some guys go through 25 teams and they'll, and one weekend, they'll just, you know, have 25 teams that they have to meet with. And the coaches there, coaches and GMs it's, or it's, back? It's kind, of a, it's kind of a mix. Like some, I remember some teams had three people there and maybe it was like, it was like the GM and, you know, a couple of people, some people, some teams had like 25 people in there and it was like the whole wow. front office, you know, coaching staff, everyone. So I think team by team, they like to do it differently, but. Um, did you meet with the Raptors that weekend? I did. I did. I did meet with. I, I think I met with about half the league. I met with about like fifteen teams. Was Masai in the room? Masai was in the room. Yeah, I remember that. What team sort of struck you uh, as sort of more intimidating, or that had interesting questions? Is, is there any one, one particular interview that you're like, is, oh, this guy's an interesting cat? You know, I I interviewed with the Orlando Magic and um, so Rob Hennigan at the time, the young yeah, guy. Yeah, this is this is yeah Rob and. Um, I believe this was like one of his first years with, with the team and I'm interviewing with them. And I think at this time it, it, we had talked about this before, but it got out that I was a Bieber fan. <laughs> so like they, I think they really do their research. They like, they, because from what I heard, they like, they call like your grade school teachers. Like I had like my fourth grade teacher called oh, wow. by, by one of the general managers. That's so like that's how, yeah, they, they go back and do the research. So ex-girlfriends. What's he like as a partner? <laughs> Does he pay oh, for meals? Does he hold yeah. the door open? Hopefully not. So <laughs> hopefully not. So um, so I'm 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 meeting with Rob and he goes, So I hear you're a Bieber fan. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I actually am. Like I love Biebs. Like, it's my guy. And um, he's like, All right, I have a question for you. He goes, Would you rather would you rather win rookie of the year or get a chance to party with Bieber for one full day? And I was like, <laughs> I was like sitting there thinking about it. And I was like, hmm, that's a, like, that's actually a good question because I want to party with Bieber a lot. Like that would be really fun. <laughs> and I came and I thought about it in my mind. I was like, you know what? I was like, I'd rather win rookie of the year because if I win rookie of the year, Biebs is going to want to party with me. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was he was like, I like that answer. Yeah. yeah. You did like, the math in your head. And yeah. It's a thoughtful that's, answer. The, that's the right answer. Yeah. The no, right they, answer. they definitely asked some, they asked some interesting questions in those. They, they, those, they, they try to surprise you with, you know, random stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, Yeah. It's, it's an interesting process. That is interesting. So then you end up getting drafted uh, by Sacramento. I remember watching a special a couple years ago where Vivek is sort of in the room, the owner of the team. Yes. And he's like, all right, we're, we're going with Nick. We're going yeah. with Stauskas. Yeah, Stauskas. Yeah. And then he gives you the call or whatever. Yeah, yeah. How did you find uh, working with or for Vivek in your time there? Um, he w I mean, to be honest, I, I feel like a lot of owners in the NBA, they're not, they're not there on a day-to-day -day basis. Not like hands you don't, on. You don't see them very much. I think they're more behind the scenes. Um, so Vivek, I mean, he was there at a lot of games. Like he would, he has his courtside seats that he would always sit in, but like very rarely do we see him at practice or doing anything else with the team. So in terms of like the effect that he had on like our day-to-day -day lives, I'm not really sure, but he was a great guy and obviously very successful at what he does. And I'm sure he's going to be the owner of the Kings for, for a while. He loves, loves the city, loves the, loves the franchise. So his enthusiasm is undeniable, even oh, he, though he's a a pretty polarizing figure in the NBA landscape. He's well, he's very passionate about basketball. Like he, he really does love basketball. So I think that's what, you know, allows him to, you know, love the franchise and love the players and coaching staff so much. Interesting. So at your time in Sacramento, I mean, I'm, you probably get asked this a lot, but I feel like it's worth asking mm -hmm. because he's such a, a sort of a, a big figure in the league, but you get there, it's Boogie's team. Yeah. He's sort of the superstar of the team, but he has a reputation as being difficult or he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's like, should I laugh? Should I not laugh? <laughs> some, would, some, some would say that. I guess. <laughs> How did you find working with Boogie? It was cool, honestly. He gets he gets a really he gets a really bad reputation throughout the league, and kind of like deservingly so because he I mean he does do a lot of things that um, maybe you shouldn't do. Lacks in maturity or something. May, in, yeah, in some moments. But honestly, what I think what a lot of it comes down to is he's so like he cares so much. Like he really does care a lot about 
the game and winning and losing. And um, I think what a lot of people that watch the NBA don't realize is we, I mean, when we all come to the NBA, we're used to winning. Like everyone, whether they're in high school, whether in college, like they're there because they were successful players and they were on winning teams. So when you get to the NBA and then, you know, you're a star player like DeMarcus is, and then you're just consistently losing and losing and losing. And every year you're not making the playoffs that it takes a toll on you. And not only does it take a toll on you, like personally, like putting that pressure on yourself, but I think he also like you feel the pressure from, you know, the city and the franchise and everyone wants you to make the playoffs and be successful. And when you're the star guy and, you know, you consistently can't get your team there, it's frustrating. And I think a lot of time, a lot of times that frustration will come out from DeMarcus in ways that like people would see him as, you know, an asshole. Sure. Because he's so demonstrative. Yeah, because he's, you know, he's passionate and he, I mean, he's... He's like he's a little moody. Like you know, if he gets in a bad mood, he'll he'll, he'll let it show. So, um, do, do teammates tend to avoid? It's like, oh, uh, Demarcus is in a mood, and that kind of dynamic. Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit. I mean, people wouldn't people wouldn't mess with like you don't mess with them. Like that's the thing. <laughs> right, like, he has right. a, you don't mess with him. Like you let him do his thing. So for me, I didn't really like. I was kind of just in the back. Like I was that, that was my rookie year. I'm trying to stay out of trouble. I'm trying to keep <laughs> my name low profile. So I wasn't really trying to do anything. But um, in my opinion, he's the most talented big man we have in the NBA. So, um, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's going to be in New Orleans that it works out or another team, but you know, he's, he's such a talented player. And, um, when he can figure it out and put it all together, like mentally and physically, I think he's going to be unstoppable. So this is kind of a two part question and kind of related. So I, a lot's been made of like the leadership and coaching style of Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big Steve Kerr fan. And obviously he has the most stacked roster ever. Yeah. Um, the first part of the question is, uh, how do coaches police and, and do they police personalities within, within a team? If, if there's somebody who's, who's being difficult or whatever, that's number one, number like two, any workplace, like, like any workplace. Yeah. Cause it, cause you know, you have managers here at 299 queen who need to police their personnel. Sure. Uh, how does that happen? And the second part of the question is, what kind of coach in your experience have, do you feel like you've excelled under the most? Cause some players really do thrive under authoritarian yeah. coaches and some players thrive under guys that are maybe a little bit more on the Steve Kerr yeah. model of, of the, the light touch. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that coaching in the NBA is more about managing egos than like X's and O's. Like, yes, you hundred percent, you have to know your X's and O's. You have to be able to X, like you have to be able to draw up good plays and have good defensive schemes and all that. But a lot of the time, that's what your assistants are for. Like, you have an assistant coach that specializes in defense. You have an assistant coach that specializes in offense and like they help you with your day-to-day stuff. To be honest, from my time in the NBA, I feel like the head coaching job is more about like being able to keep all the players happy and keep everyone like buying into what you want to do. And um, it's like the boss of the office doesn't know how to do actually anything, but it's just good they at delegating. delegating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, and but and like people, a lot of people say, Oh, you know, Steve Kerr's job is so easy, like he has the best players in the world. Like he doesn't have to do anything. In a way, yes. Like I'm sure his job isn't very difficult because he does have some of the best players. But at the same time, it dealing with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Draymond Green and Klay Thompson and and, that, and making sure everyone gets the touches and everyone gets their shots up. Everyone and feels everyone, empowered, and everyone still feels like they're like that's tough to make sure everyone feels like they're a part of winning. And um, it can be very easy for, you know, guys to feel left out sometimes. And then that's when, you know, that stuff stuff happens in the locker room and then rumors start coming around and then guys request trades and all this different kind of stuff. So I think it does fall on the coach a lot just to be able to manage egos and make sure that everyone's happy. And then the second, second question. Question, Yeah. What kind of coaching style have you felt yeah. that you've thrived under the most? To be honest, like in college, coach, you know, John Beeline, I played for him. He was very... Um, you know, he wasn't very authoritative, like he was more laid back, calm. And same with my coach now in Philadelphia, Brett Brown. He's yeah. they're way more calm, but also they have like the switch in them where it's like if you cross a certain line, they will snap. Like sure. they will go off. So um, I, th- I feel like I thrive. On, I feel like I thrive under a coach who is more calm. Like to be honest, I don't want to be like yelled at all game or all practice. Like I'd rather have like a conversation or like sure. be talked to like a normal human being. 
Um, but sometimes it's necessary. Like sometimes it's necessary to be yelled at and to like have someone get on you a little bit. Yeah, Steve um, Kerr breaks the the yeah. board sometimes, right? The, and I think that's it's an important yeah. thing for coaches to know when they when they like turn that switch on and and like get serious and start yelling at guys because you know guys do respond to that. You know, sometimes in practice, if a coach like says something while talking, guys will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. But when they say it and they're like serious and they're yelling at you, then like I feel like guys take it a little bit more seriously sometimes. So yeah, well, we we like to get into the sort of minutia of of how people do their work on this podcast, yeah. like whether it's like a musician or a film director mm-hmm. or an actor. Um, and I always find it interesting, like within your job, because you have such an unconventional career. It's like so you're in Sacramento, then you get traded to Philly. Mm-hmm. How does like how do the mechanics of something like that work? What's going through your mind? Did you have an inkling it was going to happen? Are you kind of like shit? I can't believe that this is yeah. going on. They, so yeah, they, uh, I believe I got traded July 1st, um, 2015 and, uh, by mid June of 2015, the Kings had told me that either, uh, Ben McElmore or myself was going to get traded. Like they said, um, they were looking to pursue a, a veteran shooting guard in free agency and free agency starts July 1st. And they were like, um, you know, one of you guys is going to go out. We later like, we don't know who, but like, we're going to look to trade one of you two. So um coming into that like I knew there was a possibility that I I wouldn't like come training camp I wouldn't be with the Kings and sure enough July 1st the first day that I was able to get traded that night I was sitting on my couch and I just got a call and uh it was my agent he was like well you've been traded and he was like I was like where and he was like it's like, all right, now hear me out on this one. Like, <laughs> I was like, no, no, don't start with that. He's like, hear me out on this one. He we goes, have some good news and we have some bad goes, news. He goes, I think it's a good, he goes, I really think this is a good situation. Like, spit it out. <laughs> and I was like, just saying, he's like, he's like, Philadelphia. And I, I, I know why he said it because at that time we were headed into the season where we went 10 and 72. So in like, the middle of the process. We're in the middle. So like the team didn't have a lot of talent, didn't have a lot going for them, but the positive was he looked at, he was just like, look, like you didn't get much of an opportunity to do anything your first year with the Kings. Like you're going to come to Philly and like, you're going to get to play through mistakes. You're going to get opportunities. It's going to be good for you career wise. Like it's going to suck to lose, but it'll be good to get some experience. And so I kind of looked at it with like a positive connotation um, because I knew I was going to get good experience, but that's kind of the way it works. And then after that, it's just about like, okay, I got to pack up all my stuff. And um, did you have a lot of stuff? I didn't have a lot of stuff when I was living in when I was living in Sacramento. I had um, I had rented all my furniture that nice. was in my apartment. So, other than the like my bed was the bed was mine, but other than that, it was all rented furniture. So I didn't have much furniture to move. But you know, just packing up all your clothes and stuff like that is a hassle. Um, but then, yeah, it wasn't wasn't too difficult once I got to Philly. Just moving in. Do you live downtown Philly? I do. I nice. live downtown. Um, I like Philadelphia. It's nice. It's a great town. Big year too. You guys are playing on Christmas Day. It's like the team has a lot of juice now. I feel like there's like you're all lottery picks. All of like you you guys. We have four. We have 14 nationally televised games this year, which is a lot. Which is a lot for us because last year I think we had like two. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Like anytime you get you get a Christmas Day game, obviously that's pretty. It's pretty exciting. And uh, yeah, the Raptors are still waiting for theirs. They haven't had one since Vince in the Knicks. It's, It's crazy. I don't know how they go about choosing. Um, like who gets to play and, and, and whatnot. I guess the NBA has a, a formula, but I'm glad they got to choose. I'm glad they chose us because that'll be pretty cool to play in New York on Christmas Day. It's amazing. That'll be an awesome experience. What's the vibe like on the team? Is it very collegiate? Like you're all pretty young guys. You're all kind of like feel like you have something to prove. Yeah, I think, well, especially for, especially for like the, the really young guys and like we got two number one picks who haven't played a game yet. We have Ben Simmons and Markel Fault. So for both of them, obviously... They have a lot of eyes, a lot of pressure on them to perform right away, and they're both young guys, so um, I'm sure they're anxious to to get things started. And even a guy like Joel Embiid, who who's only played 30 games and still has a lot to, he feels like he has a lot to to prove to sure. everyone. So um, the main thing for us is going to be staying healthy. You know, can everyone stay healthy? And if we can, then. I think sky's the limit just because we, we do have such a young and, and talented group. What is the chemistry like, though? Do you guys feel like you're sort of bonding as a team? Is that what this year's for? Like you said, you have Markel coming in. Yeah. we Well, I think especially the last two years, even though we haven't been successful, the core group of guys have gotten close with each other, and I think we're all really good friends. We enjoy being around each other. We enjoy playing with each other. Um, so that, thing, that makes things easy when you kind of get along with everyone. Um, but this year we do, we're, we do have a lot of new guys, you know, playing – 
you know, key positions. We got JJ Reddick coming in. We got Amir Johnson coming in. Amir. You know, we got Markel coming in, Ben coming in, who haven't played yet. So, um, you know, there's going to be new faces in, but, you know, hopefully, like you said, you know, chemistry is going to be important. So um, just getting everyone on board in training camp, making sure we establish those relationships early and then letting them grow throughout the season. Cool. All right. Well, you know what? We're super excited to play uh, in the charity game. So one more time, it's on August 29th. August 29th at Ryerson, 5.30 p.m. start time. Um, Kiss IPF goodbye. Kiss IPF goodbye. You can go to cpff.ca to buy tickets. Yeah, you can potentially play in the three-point shootout against me. You could have the honor of playing alongside you, Max Kerman. You could have the <laughs> honor of playing alongside myself and these two fine young gentlemen over here. And um, are you going to play hard D? Are you going to be like swatting some shots? That's why I don't. That, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. Like what? What? How do I? Do I come in and try to dominate the game, or do I let everyone? It's a good score? question. It's and a great question. I don't know. With, with great power. I guess the only way to find yeah. her is to buy a ticket and come. Yeah, see I guess that's you have to. You have to wait and see. All right. Well, today on the show, uh, aside from you, uh, we have Natasha Legero. Do you know who she is? She's a comedian. Yeah, she was. I, I, she was on the the, ro- the comedy roast of Justin Bieber. That's there right. Yes. Nice. So we were in Montreal for Just for Laughs recently, and we sat down with her to talk about a whole assortment of things. Comedy. Did you ask her about Bieber? I didn't ask her oh, about yeah. Bieber. Well, if I knew we were having Nick on, yeah, I would ask her about Bieber. Man. But yeah, are you a big fan of comedians? Um, I guess so. A little. Who's bit. your favorite all time? I think Chris Rock. Yeah, oh, he's the best. I love Chris Rock. Yeah, but Ke- I mean Kevin Hart's pretty funny too. I l- I like Kevin Hart, but Chris Rock, some of his old stuff just gets me every time. Yeah, yeah, it's undeniable. Well, Natasha was great. She was very open. She, she went on a, a bit of a um, an extended. I'm not going to say rant, but uh, diatribe about Donald Trump. Oh, nice. But I thought she was really interested. Are you excited to hear? Let's Nick? get to it. All right. So check out the Kiss IPF uh, Goodbye Charity Event August 29th this coming Tuesday. If you're listening to the pod right now, before that Tuesday, Max and I'll be playing it along with Shane, of course, Nick Stevskis from the NBA. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure, and I'll see you guys on Tuesday. That's right. All right. Let's get to Natasha Lazaro. Did you just get into town? Last night, yeah. Nice. I was in uh, Miami. We are on our, I'm on a tour right now. How's that going? It's going very well. It's a honeymoon tour, so it's me and my husband. Yeah. And uh, we're going to like 10 different cities, but we're both stopping in Montreal on the way. Did you just get married? Well, it's been about two years, but I did read about this couple in Newport, Rhode Island at the turn of the century who went on a 10-year honeymoon (laughs) and then came back with four kids. So I'm kind of trying to do that. So we're in year two of our honeymoon. Oh, but nice. But it's great because every hotel we go to, I'm like, it's our honeymoon. And they give us, like, champagne. <laughs> that works, eh? Yeah. But my husband gets very embarrassed because he's like, why are you lying? I'm like, we're not lying. If you Google our names, it says we're on our honeymoon. So we've been getting a lot of free shit. Yeah, That's you can get upgraded on a flight and we've stuff. We've been getting upgraded before, in yeah. hotels. We've been getting upgraded on flights. We've been getting free, uh, free candy, free chocolates, free champagne. It's been awesome. In general, is your husband more honest than you? It seems like he has a real... Uh, <laughs> issue with the line. Well, I think I'm just like naturally, I mean, it's not a lie. It's just what a I'm schemer. trying to say, just because society has told <laughs> us that our honeymoon can only be seven days doesn't mean it can't be 10 years, right? Yeah. Exactly. I kind of wanted to start, uh, I first became aware of you on the James Franco roast. Oh, okay. And then obviously after that, I started seeing you everywhere. A, sh- a channel that we work for called Much uh, has your show, Another Period. So we aired they that do? a lot. That you yeah, we yeah. cut promos for that yeah, show. Yeah, we That's cut amazing. tons of promos for that show. Yeah. I'm so happy. It's probably easier to see here in Canada than it is in America. Yeah, we Maybe. ran the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. It was on all the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Do people do a lot of uh, kind of, what do you call it when you sit home and watch TV? <laughs> <laughs> home sitting. Well, yep. you know, yeah. like you, you don't record and stream. You guys like, watch it in real time. Yeah. Right. yeah. Is there a lot of that here? It's a good I, question. I'm a PVR guy myself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's hard. It is hard. It, it's really hard, unless it's a sporting event, to really, in this day and age, to have people stay home to watch their favorite show on a Tuesday. It's just not, our lives aren't really yeah. structured like that no, anymore. No, I think live TV is the last sort of bastion of that. And I then know. event there, stuff like Game of Thrones and shit like that, that's like That maybe, rare. but other shows, it's just like, you can see them on iTunes or, any, you know, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, we're all living our lives. But I'm glad we're played on much. That's awesome. It is good. Yeah. So, but going back to the Franco roast, did you sense going into it that that was sort of a, a big platform or opportunity, or did you approach it sort of, eh, I do this, this is what I do, I'm fine? Um, well, I mean, I think I had like high hopes because my friends who had done it had really kind of come off it in a good way, like sure. Amy Schumer. And, you know, it was like, it was a very auspicious thing for them, Anthony Jeselnik. And, 
I mean, I was also extremely nervous because no, I was like definitely by far the least famous person on the dais. And like those people did not know who I was, <laughs> you know, that's intimidating. Like, and you just I, I mean, well, that's not true. I, I knew the comedians like I knew Sarah Silverman and Aziz and Nick Kroll. But, you know, there was like some really big stars on it. Uh, you know, um, who was on it again? <laughs> Seth Rogen. <laughs> Maybe they weren't that big. Jonah Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andy Samberg, Bill Hader, like just all these super talented people who I didn't know who I had to say like really mean things about the first time I met them. <laughs> yeah. Because so, you were lesser known, did you want to go harder or did it make you back off a little bit? Uh, I mean, I think in general with the roast, you kind of, I mean, my approach is go as hard as you can because why? Yeah. Because whatever they're going to say about you, they're going to say it no matter what. They're not going to change their jokes because everything's been approved. So they're, so it's not like I'm going to be nice to them, so then they'll be nice to me. So I was like, you might as well just try to be as dark as possible. But, you know, there's some things that, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's just easy to make fun of men. When you say approved, <laughs> they, they don't know the jokes beforehand, though, do they? No. Okay. But you know that someone might have a similar joke, so don't right. do that one or that kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting. Because they don't want, you know, everyone to go up on stage and make have, the, like, same the same fat joke. Right, exactly. I'm with you. Okay, so going into something like that, do you go into a bunker and just write like crazy? Do you have people that you write with? Are you like... They have people, they'll pitch you things that you'll sometimes maybe take a part of or you'll like it or you'll say, I'll, I'd like to do that, but can we switch it to this? And it's a lot of, well, another thing that was funny about doing the roast is you started to see who your fellow comedians didn't like. Like people, <laughs> people will just start sending you jokes about like people who are on the day. Unsolicited? Yeah, unsolicited. <laughs> like you're like, oh, I guess you hate him. Um, so that happened. And then also it was funny because me and Sarah Silverman and Nick Kroll and Aziz Ansari were all going up at the same places to practice all of our jokes. Oh. So we were all like trying to like not listen to each other, you know, and, and I remember I like I think I was like kind of trying to sneak and listen to Aziz and like you're all in the same clubs. Yeah, we're all in the running same, material. But not even clubs, like it would be like you know, an open mic in someone's house. Like those, <laughs> but that has 200 people. Like gotcha. there's a lot of shows like that in LA. Actually, I don't know if that one's still there because that was really fun. But, um, but yeah, like I remember hearing, or no, maybe it was Nick Kroll, like he didn't have anything about me and I was like, okay, I won't, I won't uh, write anything about him. But then it was like, he had him, he just didn't do him that night because I was there. He knew you were in the room. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, getting back to the honeymoon tour. Yes. Because you work with your husband so much, you know, you're obviously married to another comedian. You're currently on tour together. Do you, is there anything you guys won't talk about? Is there anything off limits when you guys are writing or working stuff out? You know, one of the reasons why I married Moshe is that, because I have, I had dated comedians before and there were always, you know, there were certain Sensitivities? Things. Yes. That's a good way to put it. And, and as there should be, I have them. But Moshe was like. When we met, I was like, can I say that? Do you mind if I say that? You know, things that he would do or whatever. Like, you know, something annoying he would do that I would yeah. make a joke out of. And I'd have to, like, you know, be like, is there any way you would care if I did a joke about that thing you did? And, and he was like, oh, just so you know, I never care about that. You can say whatever you want. Interesting. And so that was really cool, I thought. And, like, sometimes I'll still be like, are you sure you don't mind? And he's like, I told you on stage I don't care. So... He's, I guess he's pretty confident. You're taking that and running with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anything he can't say about you? I mean, I don't, I don't really think so. I don't, I don't know that he... I mean, I'm sure there's something that would, like, hurt my feelings, but I don't know if it would be funny. Right. <laughs> there's nothing funny about people being genuinely hurt. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was watching uh, you and Moshe and I think Adam Pauly, like, on a panel. It might have been a pod thing on YouTube. And something that stuck out to me was how much motion makes you laugh you like everything he said you seem to genuinely like explode well, he's laughing very at funny. yeah yes uh i mean i'm sure that that helped me fall in love with him i mean i think women like to laugh especially like comedians who are used to being around comics all the time imagine if you spent like 80% of your life with someone who wasn't funny <laughs> that would be kind of hard i mean for a regular person it might not be hard but for someone who's like used to that kind of stimulation yeah. You know, it's, it's entertaining and fun. Are you guys ever, like, they always say uh, comics are so competitive with each other. Do you find that happens with uh, you and Moshe? 
Moshe's competitive. I'm not. Right. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, right now on our tour, we'll switch. So, like, I'll do a headlining set, then he'll do a headlining set, then we'll both come out and give relationship advice. Um, <laughs> I saw your show, actually. It was oh, you very did? funny, yes. Where? It was in Toronto. You we did put... that in Toronto? Yep. Are you yeah, sure? And you did, like, an improv thing at the end, for sure. We both did? Yeah. I didn't know I that we swear. went to Toronto. <laughs> you were I there. We went to Amer See, I told you it's been two years yeah. of a honeymoon, so mm -hmm. I, have no, I have no recollection. But, um, it was hilarious, though. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. yeah, no, it's always funny, like at the end especially, but to your point of com competition, so I'll go up, and then he'll go up, and then sometimes he'll go up, and then I'll go up, and it's pretty hard for me to follow him because he's a very high-energy comic, and he talks really fast, and he's, like, very physical, and he'll do, like, a 45-minute headlining set with, like, an amazing ending. And then I have to, like, follow that, which is really and hard. And he's very good at improv, I, I oh, noticed. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. another thing. He's so good at, like, talking to the crowd and doing crowd work. So for me, sometimes to go up and do my set after him, it's very challenging. So it's good because it makes you grow. And he's definitely made me try to, like, close stronger right. and really bring it. Because, I mean, it's easy to follow me. I just get off the stage and I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm not like a sports. You know, I think that a lot of comedians have this, like, almost sports approach. Like, you know, I'm going to annihilate. I'm going to kill. I'd and destroyed them. <laughs> I just slaughtered. You know, and they'll get a standing ovation yeah. and it's like a whole rhythm and like, I just wish I cared. Mm -hmm. I mean, I care, but I just don't care about that like energetic part of like destruction. Mm -hmm. You don't get off on that kind of competitiveness. No. I like it more to seem like we're just all at a cocktail party having fun and now I've got to go. Yeah. You mentioned. I've got another. I've got another engagement. I, I got to be somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned uh, sports. Your husband's buddies with Blake Griffin, right? Of the LA Clippers. They've oh, done maybe. Some stuff. I yeah. know who that is. Yes. Because he did some stand-up. Uh, oh, he did. Last year. I know he and, loves comedians. Yeah. He's in my friend Joe Mandy's special. Yeah. That just came out. You should watch that on Netflix. But no opinion on Blake Griffin. Um, I, I mean, I, I just don't know him. Yeah, damn. I just, mean, I know some girls that. Have had Banged sex him? with him. Yeah. <laughs> who really enjoyed it. So, that's, that, but that's very secondhand information. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right, turning a bit to sort of politics and Trump. You don't want to talk about Blake Griffin some more? Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> so, these girls. Um, so, going to Trump a bit. Okay. This is so humiliating. Why? Because you're. I mean, I just feel like the more I travel outside of the country, the more people are like, what the? fuck is wrong with you guys and I'm like it is not us it's like such a small percentage of the country like I mean I don't know maybe 30 percent I don't know but uh, I think a lot of them regret it and who knows what other collusion happened to elect this person but I'll tell you I don't know one person who isn't like you know extremely embarrassed that this is what's happening interesting it's, it's not like it's like oh some of my friends are Trump support like no I don't even, no one I know knows anyone who voted for Trump. It's right. like, it's fascinating. So who knows what kind of collusion happened? Who knows how he got to be president? I do know there were a lot of people in the middle of America where I'm from who were probably were, you know, wanted to change and didn't know what to do and voted for him because they thought wrongly in their head that he's good at business. I heard that a few times. Yeah. Like, well, I'd like to see what he'd do for our country. Well, now everyone sees, oh, he'll just make himself richer. Yeah. That's what businessmen do. Right. right. <laughs> well, but what's your question? <laughs> <laughs> from a comedy standpoint, a lot of people stay away from that. Either from politics? It, from Trump in general. Well, I mean, honestly, everyone's just turned into a political comedian now because That's what I'm getting kind of have to be. So what I'm saying, is that something that you would normally stay away from in, in your comedy? Because you're kind of like, it's too obvious or depressing. I mean, I don't or... really talk about politics much, but I mean, this is something that is just like an um, like awesome embarrassment. <laughs> also, what's interesting is someone sent me recently I have an album called Coke Money and it's from 2013 and on it I say what's going to happen to our country I bet Donald Trump is going to run for president he's going to turn our country into a reality show and that was you know six years ago so I was kind of on so that's yeah. kind of my zone anyway comedically so now the fact that a reality star is our president and it's like this embarrassing it, you know, it's it's not just political anymore. Yeah. Do you find Trump funny just from a comedic sense? Like when he gives a speech and he has the odd um, line there? I think a lot of people feel like me, uh, which is that he's so reprehensible and nauseatingly pathetic and disgusting that most people I know can't really stomach 
listening to him talk, um, it's just, uh, it's upsetting. Yep, You know, because another reason it's upsetting is, like, this were, like, the 1930s and everyone, uh, you know, or even the 60s, like, people could, like, band together and we could, like, try to fight it. But now there's this thing happening that is technology and everyone is just waking up in the morning, looking at their phones and getting fucking miserable and depressed about some new thing he's done. It's hard to laugh and at that. it's like, and then in addition to that, it's distraction. Everyone's so distracted by their phones that it makes us less... Um, you, you know, just a little more apathetic and less passionate about truly making a difference. We're like, well, I forwarded this article to all my followers. So that's, and the news cycle lasts like enough. 10 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, I just feel like, I, I feel very hopeless <laughs> yeah. that we're going to be able to like get out of it because I think technology is just such a distraction that's swallowing us whole. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you have another question about Trump? No, that was it. Do you guys think I'm going to get in trouble for saying this? That's another thing. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, in like four more years or three and a half more years of this, like who's to say in another year he's not going to be like, you guys can't talk shit about me anymore. Yeah, this right. might actually be banned in your country. Mm-hmm. This sort of... Uh, oh, but I'm, I'm not in America right now. Right. You can tell, <laughs> you say what you want up here. No, I mean, I'm sure he's like a guy that you'd like to get a beer with. But... Jeff Ross literally just said that. Oh, Jeff knows him. Did yeah. Jeff talk shit about him? Jeff Seems said like he liked him. he was friends with him, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to ask you one last question as we're getting the wrap-up yes. sign. Uh, so, like, you tour, you do festivals, you do television. At this point in your career, what is the ideal balance? What medium do you like best if you can pick one to sort of work oh, on? Oh, the ideal balance? Um, well, balance in general is yeah. good. Like, no one wants to be on the road every weekend, I don't think, unless they have, like, two kids at home and they want to get away from them. <laughs> I notice a lot of my friends who are male comics, the second their wife their wife has the second baby, they're, like, their tour schedules are, See like, yep. all across America, all month, you know, every month. But um, I like to do acting. I really enjoyed creating a show and, you know, all that's involved in producing. And, you know, it's a very um, collaborative medium, so that, to me, is really fun. Um and then I also like performing and, you know, doing this honeymoon tour is kind of a perfect thing for me because then I'm not bored on the road by myself in some city for four days. You know, instead, Moshe and I kind of join forces. We do one night in a theater and then we're able to, like, hang out in the city the next day and then go on to another place. So mm-hmm. yeah. that's really fun. Well, thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Yes. You seem nervous. <laughs> I'm, I'm nervous that I said too much about Trump. You're fine. <laughs> All press is good press. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know why I have such a visceral reaction to him. I just feel like sort of just humiliated. I don't no, know. everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody does all the time okay. about everything. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's a good golfer. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the desserts. I am here with Max and, of course, our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham, who literally just got off a plane from PEI and walked into the studio. Shane, welcome back. I did. I'm a little bit exhausted, but um, I'm glad to be back, even though it was one of the, I think, one of the best vacations I've ever been on. I kind of lived like a bit of a rich person for a bit. I did skeet shooting. Wow. Okay. I, uh, and that goes right in line with your vegetarian morals, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I did eat a lobster down there, too. Okay. Which I, I'm not, I, I guess pescatarian, that's fine, right? I was surprised when I saw you on the old Snapchat eating lobster. It was disgusting. It wasn't disgusting. <laughs> it just tasted like broccoli, which I'm I'm not a huge fan of. But I uh, <laughs> okay, tasted like broccoli. Yeah, it tastes exactly like broccoli. I don't know why. Hmm. And I golfed on uh, one of the best uh, golf resorts in uh, I guess the world. Like wow. PI is known for that, even though I'm not a good golfer. And then uh, Alex and I, uh, th- this was to celebrate our one year anniversary. Going on this trip. It was a year ago this past weekend that we all stood there and watched mm-hmm. you guys promise yourselves to each other for life. Yeah. So I'd always wanted to go to the East Coast. I had never been. And what was crazy was just how nice everyone is out there. So Alex and I were, uh, were walking around. We're looking at the real estate. We're like, holy shit, how much does a, a house over here cost with this beautiful landscape? It's like $97,000. Whoa. So we're looking around and we're... You know, you know, when you're on vacation, you're like, I want to live here. Yeah. So we're kind of thinking about that. And we're like, I wonder what this place is like to live. I bet you there's zero crime, zero violence, zero any of that. 
Like you have to endure on a regular basis living in Toronto <laughs> Hamilton. Well, you know, sometimes I do get scared of uh, being beaten up or whatever. Okay. <laughs> so I look it up. The homicide rate, they, they don't, there's less than one murder a year. They can't even uh, do it on the, the scale. They have to do it over 10 years. Because sometimes there's a year where no one's murdered. There's 0.7 murders every 10 years in PEI. I like how this the murder rate is now guiding your life. Why did Shane move out east? Well, he was scared of being murdered. <laughs> yeah. So then Alex and I are like, uh, you know, it's our year anniversary. We're like, this is one of the most beautiful places. We're like, hey, we're being a little crazy. We're like, let's pull the goalie tonight. Oh, my God. And let's, uh, you know, let's say hey, start a family or whatever. Maybe move out here one day. <laughs> like, it'll be a romantic thing, right? Like, we'll ha- have a retirement year. <laughs> And uh, Web, Webmaster Dan just walked in the room and his jaw is on the floor right now. <laughs> so we're walking around and then uh, a guy walks up to me with both hands out and he's like coming at me pretty fast. So I'm like, oh, maybe like, what's this about? He just goes, I love your jacket, man. Gives me a hug, hugs me. Just like a, a what time of day was this? This was about 7 p.m., but it's right before sunset, but it's beautiful out. After the hug, you realize your wallet was missing? No, no, every, everything was good. Like, this was great. Then another guy's like, you look like a movie star. He's like, this guy's Zach Braff. Well, not the best star to look like, but still, that was pretty cool. He kind of gives me like a little hug, and he, he was like loving it. So then we're remembering, we're like, we're going to have a really good night tonight. So let's get the upper alcohol, which you said is tequila, right, on one of these stories. Yeah, Paul Coffey's wife, Stephanie, said that. So we do a little bit of a, a bar crawl, and we start taking tequila shots everyone there super nice everything's going great go to another bar we do this trivia night we're killing the trivia so we thought turns out people there are like they're kind of like toronto people just super nice like they're totally up on trivia everything i thought they'd be a little behind over there for some reason or like slow <laughs> like is that just like country bumpkins you know exactly yeah. that was kind of my mindset but they're way more with it like one of the questions was what was abe simpson's military uh, infantry called something fish the flying hellfish yeah yeah alex knew that yeah. and i knew a bunch of hard ones so we thought we were going to win we we came in like eighth place or something but still having a great time <laughs> so we want to end the night because we were we were kind of reminiscing uh about like all of our go-to things we do or whatever and i was telling alex one of my go-to's as as i thought she knew was when i sing karaoke i sing hero by enrique iglesias i'm like oh it's hilarious as you know she's like i've never seen you sing that I'm like, oh, like, wouldn't it be funny to find a karaoke place? And I, I do a little speech and do that for our anniversary. And then the guy goes, well, a, a karaoke place is literally right next door. So I'm like, great. Go to the karaoke place next door. And there's a, a fat guy singing, like, I like big butts or whatever. And the whole karaoke bar is going crazy. Like, everyone's singing along. Everyone's smiling. It's the funnest atmosphere ever. So I'm like, this is going to be a great night. Fill out my form, hand in hero with a spoken word intro. It's extra funny too, so I always try to do that. Anyway, I'm noticing that the vibe is a little weird towards me. Like this is kind of a, uh, I guess it's younger than the bars I was going to before. So these guys are more on the prowl maybe than the previous bars. So nobody likes me at this place. (laughs) Everyone likes Alex, which seems to be a a theme. So I'm like, uh uh-oh. But I'm like, I'll probably win them over with my humorous song when it comes up. So there's this Adam, like, you know how there's always a really good singer guy running the karaoke? Mm -hmm. So this guy kind of looks like Adam Levine, but he's, I don't know. I I didn't like him either, but he was like trying to be really enthusiastic. (laughs) And he belts out a song like perfectly. He's got a great voice, great bod, everything. He doesn't (laughs) like me either. I could tell he doesn't like me. Calls me up to the stage. For, for me to sing Enrique Iglesias' Hero. And I give a little speech. I'm like, hey, I've, this is my wife and I's year anniversary. She's never heard me sing. And everyone's like kind of like taunting me, like, go Shane, yeah, kill it up there. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm going to sing this song uh, and I'm going to dedicate this to my beautiful wife. Song starts. I'm expecting people to sing, sing along. And I do kind of a funny thing. I go, I will be the hero, baby. You will take they breath away. You know, I say they, and it usually gets a little bit of a laugh. Anyway, the crowd is just like, all of a sudden, just like talking amongst themselves. Everyone's ignoring me. I'm like, okay, I'm not winning over this crowd. I'm just going to focus on Alex. 
So I go over to her and then I just give her a, a little kiss. And then I, I go to like prolong the kiss a little bit, but she bolts away from me, runs over to this group of guys, slaps a guy in the face. And like Alex isn't, uh, she's not a delicate flower. Like Alex is very beautiful, but she's strong. Like on her baseball team, she's a heavy hitter. Yeah. She slapped so hard. Two diamonds came out of her wedding ring. And I'm just like, oh, thank God that ring's, you know, not that expensive. Like, but, but <laughs> she, she, she did pick out the ring. But, um, <laughs> but I'm like, holy, what's going on? But I'm still on stage. So I don't know what to do to like hop off stage. And I know no one's going to hit like a really pretty girl, right? Or the whole bar is going to so attack. I, I should no probably one's do hit the a right girl thing. in general. But like right, right. Alex just, like Alex was the prettiest girl there. And every guy was after her. Like the, these guys would have been murdered if they hit Alex back. Then Alex knocks the guy's hat off. Then they're like, whoa. They're like, lady, like, calm down. Then she goes, oh, I'm sorry, and puts her drink up, spills it on the guy's crotch, slaps him again. <laughs> what? I'm still on stage, like, awkwardly. <laughs> One more it, chorus. Singing at this point, like, I will be the hero. And now everyone is paying attention because PEI doesn't get, like, you know, an attack like this. So every, it's like, it's like at Blues Brothers when, like, the record scratches. Like, everyone's watching. A lot of people are wondering what I'm going to do. So I, uh, I go over to Alex after she goes, ah, you guys are losers. And she walks away. <laughs> I go, babe, what happened? Like, calm down. She goes, they threw a lime at you when you weren't looking. I go, they threw a lime at me. <laughs> then all of a sudden I get irate and I go over to the guy. I grab his hat and I fucking chuck it like way into the crowd. So he can't get it. Guy looks at me. He doesn't know what to do. The Adam Levine dude's like, don't be childish. And I'm like, the guy threw a lime at me. He's like, so what? I'm like, it could have gotten my eye. He goes, it could have gotten your eye. <laughs> Song ends. I get off stage. Song's still going. <laughs> I get off stage. Bouncer rushes over. And uh, Alex goes, we're leaving. Don't worry. We're leaving. He goes, no, no. Just tell me what happened. And she's like, uh, explains the story. The bouncer goes, Okay, so uh, you knocked his hat off because he was throwing lime at your husband. Your husband grabbed his hat and threw it. All of you uh, apologize, and you help him find his hat. Says to me. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. We go around looking for the hat. But it's, it's nowhere. The hat's, the hat's been stolen. So we don't know what to do. So we just kind of like acted like we were uh, still looking for the hat and left out the back door, went home. Pulled the goalie and uh, possibly made some psychopathic baby that's chilling right in Alex's uh, tum tum right now. But that's, uh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Nick Stauskas. Thank you to Natasha Legero. Uh, maybe Shane's going to have a baby. I don't know. Thanks to everyone that helps with this pod. You can follow us at Micah Much on Instagram and Twitter. All of the drawings and doodles are done by Jenna Gregory from generalsdoodles.com. Um, all of the type and everything you see from the design is done by Tara Paquette. Uh, thank you so much again for listening. Rate us on iTunes. The Mike and Watch Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.